Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Good morning. So we're continuing a series called A Spirit-Filled Church, 12 Marks of a Spirit-Filled Community, marks that characterized that first century church after it was filled with the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at the seventh mark of a Spirit-Filled Church, and that seventh mark is that a Spirit-Filled Church is a helping church, and might I add, is really a healing church, a helping and healing church. And in order to find that, we're going to unpack a little bit uh, a new passage today, starting in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Uh, as a reminder, last week, uh, Austin was here, and he preached on the idea that a Spirit-filled church was a growing church. And his main point that he emphasized, though, was that we shouldn't aim to be a growing church. Rather, we should aim to be a healthy church. And if we are a healthy church, it's likely that we will grow. But a growing church is not always healthy. So again, our aim is to be a healthy church. But as we know, uh, reading in his last uh, line, I think in chapter 2, is talked about how the church in Jerusalem continued to grow in amazing ways and amazing, amazing pace. But you have to remember, this is the start of the church as we know it today. And so they were just coming off of uh, Judaism. And so the, the apostles and the followers of uh, 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 the Jewish followers continued to do the practices that were common to the Jewish people today, including going up to the temple to pray and worship to God. And as a side note, that is very similar to what we saw happening yesterday, right? We had people that were going to the Tree of Life synagogue simply to go up and pray and to worship God. But if you watch the news or heard the news, you know that something terrible happened, very terrible. There was a massacre of 12 people, and I think six people are still injured in critical condition. And so, again, it's a, it's a, it's a wake-up call for all of us, especially the church. And in this situation, you start asking yourself, well, what can we do about it? And I would say, again, we go back to our first mark of the Spirit-filled church. The Spirit-filled church was a praying church. And so to prove we're a praying church, I know we had this thing called Fight Night a few weeks ago, and everybody was about praying over there, but I want to see if that can be carried in the sanctuary this morning. So what I'm going to do is take a few minutes, and I'm going to shut my mouth and allow you guys, as you feel prompted, in your seat, stand up, whatever you want to do, to pray. You might be praying about, you know, the situation, the, obviously the victims, the victims' families, the, the congregation over there, you know, praying about the whole, uh, praying for the country and its whole atmosphere of hate, even praying for the, the shooter. Obviously, that person needs salvation. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily regard. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Thank you for demonstrating that you are indeed a praying church. I think it's very important, and I appreciate it very much. I'd like to start now and continue to read on with uh, starting at chapter 3, first, uh, uh, the book of Acts, uh, reading 3, 1 through 10. 
One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he's put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Again, a very easy story to follow. Uh, Peter and John were going up doing what Jewish people do. Again, they're going up to the the temple to pray, to worship God. And as they were going up the steps, they encountered a, a crippled man, a crippled man that apparently had been crippled since birth. And I know we don't uh, think this way today, or we shouldn't think this way, but back then, being crippled or being lame was actually, you know, it had a stigma associated with it, that people were, were actually cut off from a sense of community. They were ridiculed, they were mocked, and some people actually believed that the physical ailment was part of really a spiritual blot, so to speak, a, or, or a moral uh, a, a defi- uh, de- deficiency within them. And so you have this, this poor man who's not only poor, but he, but he has... He's, he has very low self-esteem. He's cut off from his community. He has the inability. He's not able to find good work. And he's even in some sense excluded from God because he has to remain outside after day up until the, until the temple steps. We don't know who was carrying him. We would hope it was his friends, but it could have been just people even taking advantage of him, you know, taking him up there that they might be able to get a percentage of the money that he collected. You know, whatever the case, it was very strategic to take this man up to the gate uh, called Beautiful because that was apparently one of the more popular uh, gates that people would pass through. And the Jewish people were known to be very generous in their giving because the Jewish people really believed that giving to the poor would gain merit before God. And so anyway, we have Peter and John going up to the temple and they're probably talking about a lot of things and they're and they, they, they pass by this crippled man, and they come up to this crippled man. Now, you would think they had a lot of things in their mind. You know, they're thinking about the recent church plant. They're thinking about all these things that, you know, like we sometimes do, would just pass by this person without thinking twice. I don't know about you, but I know a number of times I've, I've passed by a homeless person, you know, just look straight ahead and just keep on going. Or some of you may, have do, may do what I do. Occasionally, you know, you come to an intersection, there's somebody standing here with a sign. And you don't feel like giving money that particular day, and so you keep your eyes straight ahead. I mean, I can admit that. Anybody else want to admit that? You know, but we see something different here. We see Peter and John not ignoring him, but, but really addressing him head on. He goes on and makes the statement. Click, click. Oh. It says, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Look at us. Explanation point. And this apparently would have gotten the man's attention, or basically these words would have also suggested that the man was not looking at Peter and John, might have had his head low, you know, in shame. But we know, again, when he said, or Peter said, look at us, it got his attention. 
And so it goes on to say that the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Expecting to get something from them. Now, this idea of expecting to get something from him would have been, you know, it's not, a, it's not unreasonable. Because, again, the Jews would give out money. And we had just read earlier, a few weeks ago, that the first century church was a very generous church. In fact, they liquidated all their assets at one time, held that major garage sale, whatever, liquidated their assets, gave the proceeds to everybody that had a need. And so the word might have got out that this, these new Christians or these followers of Christ we're a very generous bunch. And so it's, you know, it makes sense that he would expect to get something. But Peter and John didn't give him what he expected. They gave him what he needed. In fact, they gave him more than he particularly, what than he probably bargained for, that he thought about that he was going to get that morning, a complete comprehensive healing by Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we read on that Peter said, silver and gold I do not have but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth's walk. As a side note, when it says the name of Jesus Christ, it's not just talking about how we talk about a name as just kind of a, a label or identifier. It's talking about the power and the authority behind the name. And so when he says in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth's walk, he's not doing it you know, thinking the way we think about or say things uh, like the name of Jesus at the end of a prayer, how we kind of tack it on. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. No, they were thinking in terms of calling down the power, the authority, the resurrection power down on that situation. Again, that power that death could not hold, they were calling that same power that raised Christ from the dead down on this situation. And so God responded. It goes on to say, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, it's easy to read this passage in your own quiet time and just say, well, that's cool. That's kind of the, the first miracle, and it's interesting, and, you know, go on. But if you unpack this a little bit, it was not just a physical healing that was having place. It was a complete comprehensive healing of the entire being of that man. Because again, there was a, st a stigma associated with not being able to walk. And now this man was walking and jumping and leaping, even in the temple courts, which revealed that he had restored sense of confidence in himself. And we also see that again, that he went with them, being them the disciples, into the temple, which we see a restoration of community, a new community of Christ followers. And not only that, even though we'd have to read between the lines, it's likely that he went on and was able to be gainfully employed and, and earn his own income and no longer be dependent on the people that pass by. But more importantly, by the words he was praising God is evidence of a restored relationship with God. And so, yes, we have here the, the first recorded miracle, but more importantly, we see from the get-go that the Spirit-filled church was a helping church and a healing church. And so, you know, we can take this situation and we can glean some lessons from it, from it and really allow it to serve as a guide for how we should deal with the people in need today. 
And we need a guide because it's very, very hard to deal with all the needs out there, especially financial needs. I mean, so many people are struggling financially, find themselves suddenly in the midst of some sort of financial crisis because it's their fault or the fault of others or whatever. Whatever the case, they find themselves in a financial crisis. We get calls week, sometimes weekly on people looking for help with their rent, utilities, whatever. And they expect the church to give them something. And that expectation isn't wrong because, again, the church is expected to be generous in giving on both a global and a local scale. And I think the church definitely is, the church and all Christian charities are very giving on a global scale. In fact, you know, when there's a disaster such as an earthquake or a hurricane, you know, the first responders aren't FEMA. First responders are usually Christians. I know that many of you went on the mission trips we took down to New Orleans when Katrina hit, you know, and stayed. And so again, Christian, you know, people expect Christians to help on a global scale, and they do in many different ways. In some ways, they never make the news. As a side note, how many of you know Graham and Marilyn Johnstone? Graham's the one that up there playing the keyboard usually. Can't be there today because you know where he's at? In Africa. What is he doing? Performing operations on crippled people. He'll be there for two months and probably operate on 200 people. Free. He is an orthopedic surgeon that is well known in Pittsburgh. Very well known. But he's spending two months down there in the heat of Africa performing surgery on people he does not know for not expecting a dime. In fact, if you have their email, write them a word of encouragement. They would love to hear from you. But anyway, so there's the expectation that we would help on a global level, but that helping expectation would also go down to the individual level, the local level, and the individual. And so what happens is you get people all the time thinking, you know, I'm in a financial crisis. I'm going to go to the church because the church is going to help me. The church will solve my problem. The church will give me money. Now, again, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, there is time where giving a financial gift of some sort is appropriate, but there's so many needs. And frankly, just as Peter and John didn't have enough change in their pocket, silver or gold in their pocket, we really don't have enough silver or gold in our coffers of the church to just freely give anybody that asks. We would love to, but we don't. But the reality is, even if we could, we shouldn't. Because we should follow the example of Peter and John. Again, they did not give what he expected, money. Instead, they gave him what he needed. Because what's wrong, sometimes when you give them what they expect, you can actually cause more harm than good. Because for one, you keep them in a state of dependency on the church, but more importantly, you take away the opportunity for complete, comprehensive healing that comes through Jesus Christ. And so giving money can hurt more than it helps. And I take this idea from a book called When Helping Hurts. Actually, I think I was first exposed to it about 10 years ago, and it forever changed the way I think about helping people financially, at least. Because giving people, I, 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 I have not applied it well but it's a very good book that I think would be helpful for even for the, for the deacons to, 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 to read. But the primary premise here, or one of the key premises, the key ideas, is that again, you know, 
financial distress or, or poverty or whatever you want to call it is often just a symptom of other areas of brokenness. And he mentions four particular areas of brokenness, a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with self, a broken relationship with others, and a broken relationship with creation. That financial poverty crisis is often just a symptom of a deeper brokenness in one of these areas. Let me go through each area. Again, uh, we're, the relationship with God, we're all designed from the very beginning of time to have a relationship with God. I don't think that could be argued. Just go back and look in Genesis. God is why we exist. And our job is to glorify him. I think it's the Westminster Confession that says your primary job is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. But after that, we are also supposed to have a good relationship with ourselves because we also know we're made in the image of God. Or the Latin that's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. What nicer thing can be said about a person? Or can you say about yourself? Being made in the image of God, which means that our thinking, our acting, our speaking should all reflect that image. And the third thing is the relationship is supposed to have a relationship with others. It's supposed to get along. We were, ne- we were intended to love each other. didn't matter color of the skin. didn't matter political affiliation. Didn't, none of that stuff mattered. We were supposed to get along with each other. The people in our family, the people in our workplace, the people in our church, the people in, across the rivers, all those people. We were supposed to design. And finally, we were, that we were designed for that relationship, a good, solid relationship with others. And finally, we were designed for to have a good relationship with creation. That's a little bit harder to follow, but the idea is, again, that if we go back to Genesis, I don't have time to pull up the passages, but it says that God made man and woman, but then he placed them and gave them dominion over everything else, all of his creation. He put them in charge. Not dominance, but dominion, which means basically they were going to be like stewards, caretakers of all the creation, all the plants, all the animals, everything in the world God said, here, take care of that. And if they took care of it well, they would yield, they would receive the fruits of their labor, which among other things, you know, being able to use the raw materials to, to build houses and the, and the food, to have enough food to eat, the whole world would be able to do this forever. It's there. If that was happening, that, that would be there if, if we had right relationship with creation. In fact, if we had right relationship with all these things, our lives, the world would flourish Everybody, the life would be so wonderful because, again, people are living, would be living in right relationship with God, right relationship with self, right relationship with others, and right relationship with our creation. We would experience what's called, the Jewish word is called shalom. Anybody heard the word shalom? It's hard to get a handle on, but it's just basically, you know, this idea of peace, a state of peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. Isn't that nice? They use that, Jewish people use it as a greeting and as a goodbye. What nicer thing can you say to somebody than just the word shalom? You're putting that blessing on somebody. But if you haven't figured it out, we really don't live in a state of shalom now, do we? Based on what we saw not only yesterday, but all last week. Wasn't there a shooting at a Kroger store somewhere? Wasn't there a, a bomb scare? Ten. And then yesterday, what happened yesterday? We do not live within a state of shalom. We live in a state of mess. That things are out of whack. And when that out of whackness extends to things like government institutions and politics and schools, academic institutions, and the entertainment industry, you've got a big pile of mess 
And that's what we've got going on right now. And people say, well, you know, they, everybody, when you have this crisis, it's like, oh, why? And what's going on? And how can we stop this? But nobody can answer that. Why? Except Christians. It's a simple answer. Some people don't like it, but really we attribute, we trace this mess back to a thing called the fall. I know we don't like that, but it sure does provide a good answer. Because again, man created, or God created man and woman in his image to, to, to live in, 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 in relationship with God and everything was going fine and have, have, have the world working fine and, and care and over creation. They decided, again, that they want to do their own thing walked away from God, walked away from worship is what I call, began to worship idols, whatever you want to call it. And, and what happened is you see immediately how all these other relations were impacted. Again, you see that the relationship with God was impacted because immediately they didn't have that intimate fellowship with God. They hid from God. Messed up their relationship with self. They went from being self-confident to embarrassed. They didn't know they were naked before they sinned. They became self-conscious. And then they had a relation with others that they messed up. They started arguing, blaming each other. It was your fault. No, it was your fault. It was your fault. And that blaming and that anger carried right outside the garden. Now, two steps out of the garden, you had what? Cain killing Abel, killing his brother to death. You know, so you had all this, all this stuff going on. And it doesn't take a, a genius to see that how this these broken relationships impacted every human being to some degree or other. Now think about, again, broken relationship with self. Think of the people you know have the lowest self-worth, self-esteem. What do they struggle with? I mean, give me an answer. I mean, somebody knows. You, we all struggle with self-esteem. What do you struggle with? Depression. Depression. Very good. Thank you, Kimberly. Oh, I appreciate it. What else? Anxiety. Suicide. Suicidal thoughts. Addictive behavior. Opioid addiction. That's all just a part of a broken relationship with self. That's all it is. And then what about, again, a broken relationship with others? You know, you begin to think about, well, what does that cause? What causes hate, among other things? It causes road rage. It causes broken marriages. It causes the things that happened this past week. That's again, just to go back to, it's a, a broken relationship with others. What about creation? Creation is this simple. It's why we have pollution. It's why we have global warming. It's why we have rainforests for us that have been devastated. It's why, again, we have hostile workplaces. That's all evidence of a broken relationship with creation. And then obviously we have broken relation with God through our idol worship of technology and, and money and possessions, all that kind of stuff. And you say, well, Chuck, that's, this is a nice history lesson, but what's your point? What does this have to do with whether or not we should give a handout to somebody who shows up in the church? And I would say everything. Everything. Because again, you know, when somebody shows up and wants help, you know, we're not supposed to just kind of, uh, you know, the, what, when somebody shows up to help, we have to realize that, again, that the financial need is just a symptom of, again, these four broken relationships. It's just a symptom. And so what happens if we give money without thinking through, 
we can cause damage. And again, because we keep them in that state of dependency, but also, again, we prevent them from shalom. And isn't that what we'd want on everybody? And what does money do? Money doesn't fix shalom. Money's not about shalom. This is where I put a plug in for this thing we do around here called coaching. Where you sit one-on-one, and the idea is to help bring people towards shalom. And a simple way to say that. To create that relationship with God, with self, with others, and creation. That's all you're doing is pulling that out and bringing them, moving them towards a place of shalom. But let's see if I can bring this down to more of a practical example. Is Let's say you have a, I use a woman as an example. Let's say you have an abusive woman. Somebody went from, goes from relationship to relationship in abuse. What does that do for her self-worth? Does that build up your self-worth? No, it tears it down. Tears it down. And so what, you know, what happens is that self-worth, that low self-worth, how does it affect your ability to get a job? Do you feel confident going in for that job interview? No, you feel like you're useless. You have no abilities. And when you don't get a job, you don't have money. And when you don't have money, you have a need. And then because you may have in the past, for whatever reason, may have cut yourself off from the people that love you or care for you, your original sense of community, your family, your friends, or otherwise, or even your church, what happens is you become kind of isolated out there. You have a broken relationship with the community. And so when you find yourself in a situation of need, you don't have that community of support to go to. And But would you have a $400 bill and no way of paying it, where do you go? You go to the payday loan store, don't you? Some of you have. Oh, they'll give you a loan at about 40% interest. And what happens is it doesn't help. It just perpetuates, again, the cycle of dependency and depletes the assets, that the little assets they already have. And then what happens is that because they haven't established good credit, their relationship with creation is messed up. Because no longer are they, are they, they have dominion over their workplace, or their, workplace their, their, their shelter, or even their food. Because they cannot get a low-interest loan to get a mortgage, they are stuck living in Section 8 housing or living in, in squalor, living in, in poor conditions, where they're paying too much rent in an unsafe environment, and then often even going from block to block to city to city, because they don't have always the money to pay the rent. And all this adds up to a kind of a tarnished, broken relationship with God because they, they see themselves as worthless before others, so they know they're worthless before God. How can God love me if I get to the sin in my life? You see how it all fits together very nicely? And I, I want to back up. I want to stop there and say, I know using the example of a woman is not viewed favorably probably, but I could easily use the... Uh, a man in the illustration. In fact, the man would also demonstrate brokenness in all these areas, and it's probably that reason that they are abusing the women in the first place. All those broken things, especially brokenness with self. So just perpetuating this thing, this brokenness, and so we end up with this mess. And it's these people then who end up at the church saying, can you help me? And you got these poor people called the deacons who have to deal with whether or not they should give money or not to somebody in need. 
if you see a deacon, you know, thank them because they're doing what you don't have to do. So they're doing the things that you don't have to do. They're wrestling whether or not they should give money to somebody. Anybody here deacon? Raise your hand. Would you show them a little bit of love? Give them a little bit of encouragement. They deal with hard cases. You cannot imagine how difficult it is when somebody you know needs money, but you know that if you give the money, it may do more harm than good. So you got to just, sometimes they just, they don't even know how to make the decision. They get frozen, and it's very difficult. So, so again, what's, what's the answer here? How do you know? Is there a way of knowing when you should give money or not, and how do you help somebody? I would just like to, you know, kind of close in, in three things that this guy in the book, the Steve Corbett, recommends. He says, three ways you can help without hurting is relief, rehab, or rehabilitation, and restoration. Let's think about relief. Now, relief is a situation, is appropriate to give money in a situation where a tsunami or an earthquake, something happened that's beyond their control. So a good example would be like a tsunami or an earthquake. They had no control over the fact that they do not have a house now or they didn't have food to eat. And so relief efforts are necessary, otherwise the people are going to die. Or you can take it to the individual level, in town here, whatever, is that maybe this, this made-up woman or something, she had a fire in her house, lost everything. Maybe she was robbed. Maybe she got a pink slip at work and she, she just was laid off out of the blue. You know, maybe she was just, again, she was, she was not able to... Um, I forgot the fourth thing I was thinking about. Anyway, she was either, either robbed or she was dealing with a fire situation or, or, or some sort of, or even a death. All things that she did not have control over. All the things that she couldn't really can control. And so, again, in this situation, relief is a good thing because what you're doing, what the person is doing or when you're giving that person relief is you're basically stopping the bleeding, it's very the, the perfect biblical example is the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, the, the Good Samaritan is coming along and he sees the Jewish man that is down and was robbed and was beaten up. And so what does he do? He, he heals him or puts some bandage on him. Then he takes him to the local Moto 6 or whatever and get, buys him a few nights of lodging. That's relief. Perfectly acceptable. That's what Christians should do. And then you got... But then you got this other area of, called... Uh, the next one is rehab. Now, rehab gets a little bit more complicated... Because rehab requires you to get a little bit involved. It's basically helping people to come back to the pre-crisis state, to what they were before they hit the crisis. So it's not always giving them money. It's saying, you know, I'm going to walk alongside you as you get back on your feet. I'm not going to do the work for you, but I'll help you out. I'll, I'll maybe babysit your kids. I'll drive you to the job interview or something like that. But I'm not going to do your work. You have to get up. You have to apply. And so the key aspect of rehab is the involvement of the people. So again, you're helping the development of the person, so you're eliminating or slowly reducing that dependency on you. Again, restoring those relationships. And really, that's the, the last one is restoration. The best, but almost the most difficult thing to do because what you're doing is you're trying to actually, again, bring back that whole state of shalom. Relation with God, relation with self, relation with other, and relation with creation. So you're trying to do is identify the cause of this financial crisis and begin to work with the person to help 
kind of strengthen or, or remand that, that broken area in any one of those areas. And But he know that that is difficult because that requires the deepest level of commitment. It requires personal touch, not just writing check from a distance. It requires the personal touch, and that's what we see Peter and John doing, right? It requires them looking in the eye or bending over and picking them up. And most of us don't want to get our hands messy. But the reality is we can't do it all as ourselves, even as a church. That's why many churches, including us, we partner with organizations that can kind of fill in the blanks and help us to fill in the areas that we can't meet. And that's why we partner with like the Shepherd's Door and His Place and Urban Impact because they're good at doing things that we're not, of again, strengthening those relationships that we are not good at. We can deal with the spiritual though for certain. Anyway, I got to wind this up a little bit. I got I to gotta wind it up, but I know that maybe of you, some of you still got many questions and maybe even a little pushback about this whole thing. But really, my main point here is simply that push, 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 go ahead. Material poverty is often a symptom of poverty of relationship between God, self, others, and creation. Material poverty is often a symptom of poverty of relationship between God, self, and others in creation. Again, what that suggests is that we're not about just giving money out. We're about giving wholeness that is made available through Jesus Christ. Through the redemption that came by way of Jesus Christ. You know, going back to this idea of the, you know, from Genesis is that, yeah, there was creation, there was the fall, but God looked down and saw the mess and said, I can fix that. And he sent his son to redeem us and to kickstart the process of reconciling us back to God in all these relationships. You know, a passage that speaks of this. Go ahead and move me forward there. I think we need to change the battery in this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. To reconcile all things. Reconcile is a fancy way of just saying, you know, reestablish a relationship that's right. We reconcile bank accounts. Some of us do, I do occasionally. But to reconcile is to say, is to say okay, I want my number to agree with the banks through a reconciliation process. But here we're talking about not bank accounts. We're talking about reconciliation between these areas of our life. So if the problem of poverty is rooted in these broken relationships, then the solution is in the reconciliation that's made available through Jesus Christ. I'm talking slow because I want you to get this. Some of you say I talk too fast. Austin talks a lot faster than me. But <laughs> as I get older, it's like I'm, I'm in no hurry. But, again, but the good news is we are, we get to participate in that. Isn't that cool? And a passage that speaks of this, it says, And he, Jesus, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors, which means that we get to participate. We get to share the good news of reconciliation. And as the writer Steve Corbett says, we actually have a ministry of reconciliation. He goes on to say, oh, too fast. Poverty alleviation is the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to glorifying God by living in right relation with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. I love this, and this actually just came to me this morning when I was practicing. 
the ministry of reconciliation, we have so many ministries around here. Wouldn't it be nice to have a ministry of reconciliation? Somebody who says, I see this. I see what's happening here, and I want to be the person who coordinates all these things coming together in somebody's life. How cool is that? And there are organizations, and I think Stephen's ministry is one that does it pretty well, is just pinpointing these broken areas of life and then kind of just begin to work with the people and, and fill those brokenness in and strengthen those relationships. Again, this is, this is stuff I, that I could spend a long time, ago, time on. But again, the point is that we need to not just simply go out there and put a Band-Aid on the situation. We need to take our cues from Peter and John. Again, Peter and John did not give, them, give the man what he expected. He gave him what he needed. And the main thing he gave them was healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what that says to us is that, again, we're not, our primary, primary uh, task is to not even to fix all these other relationship creation, self, and others. It's, it's the first and foremost, fix that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the primary one. And I know that some of you are thinking, well, I'll get around to that. I can do all these other things. Yeah, you can, don't get me wrong. There's organizations that are not Christians out there that are fixing, helping people fix their marriage and helping people fix their finances, helping them get off drugs, all good things. But from God's perspective, you know, none of them really matter if you lack that real connection with God, if you lack that, that again, that link to God through Jesus Christ. All the other ones really don't mean a hoot unless you have that first and foremost relationship with God established. Because that, again, all healing and help flows out of that first and foremost, that relationship with God. And that's what we see again in the story of, uh, of Peter and John. They brought him healing, yes, but they did it through the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was a physical healing. It was more important. You saw the guy running and jumping. You saw a restored self-confidence that he never experienced in his whole life. You saw him available, entering into a new community, not just the community of his old friends that really didn't care that much about him, but a community of faith that, that would try to help him from this point out. He saw him reestablish himself with creation, that he's now becoming gainfully employed. And most importantly, again, you see this restored relationship with God. So we can be thankful that Peter and John just didn't respond to the man by throwing some coins into his cup or whatever, because had they done so, they would have left him in a state of dependency and prevented him from experiencing the wholeness that comes to Jesus Christ and prevent us from having a lesson on how to navigate the needs that come to us and doing it a way of helping without hurting. Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.